Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast, and another new beginning. For today, we begin a discussion of the third genre of Shakespearean drama. We have looked at two comedies, Midsummer Night's Dream and Much Ado About Nothing, and a tragedy, Hamlet. But actually, Shakespeare's earliest successes included plays in the native English genre of the history play. And we're going to begin talking with some background this week, next week, about Richard II, which dates from 1595, which is early maturity for Shakespeare. The basic Shakespearean timeline is that there is the early apprentice period from somewhere, we're not sure of the dating that far back, but somewhere in the late 1880s through the early 1590s. And then the theaters were closed down for close to two years between 1592, only opening again in 1594, due to the plague. And in that intervening time, Shakespeare artistically was growing. And when he came back, his plays They still count as early plays in a sense, but they are early maturity. They are no longer the apprentice work of the early period. And Richard II, Romeo and Juliet, and Midsummer Night's Dream all derive within a very short period of time from that early explosion into maturity. Richard II, 1595, Romeo and Juliet, 1595 and 96, and Midsummer Night's Dream, also 1595 and 96. A history play, a tragedy, and a comedy, all within basically a year and a half to two years. And as I hope to point out, even if rather on the fly, in talking about the text of Richard II, These plays are actually interconnected in a unique way in Shakespeare. He was clearly thinking about all three of them together in some way or other while he was writing them. The imagery, such as the moon, crosses over from play to play, and that kind of inter-reflection is one of the chief pleasures of studying Shakespeare. The interconnections are almost without limit. I don't know of anything else like it in literature. Richard II, 1595. This week is introductory in two ways. I would like to talk in general about the genre of the history play And then, because we are speaking in these plays of actual English history, we need some background, and I promise not to go overboard with it and get tedious about historical things and names and dates and so forth, but enough to follow a rather involved plot. I hope there's a pleasure in it. These plays have been very popular on the stage for hundreds of years. They've also been quite influential. Somebody likes this kind of thing. 
one person who does, who is on record as liking them and being influenced by them, is George R. R. Martin, who has said explicitly that the Game of Thrones, or in the written version, Song of Ice and Fire, that one of the major influences on them is Shakespeare's history plays. So if you like that kind of sprawling plot with sprawling cast of characters and lots of plot machinations and counterplotting and so forth, this is one of the places that it came from. To speak of the genre, however, categories of drama. Of course, we get the two most famous categories, comedy and tragedy, from the Greeks. But drama emerged again after the fall of the classical world in the later Middle Ages. And those are the two times which, when drama germinated in the Western world. And both times, and it is no doubt of significance, both times the drama emerged, it emerged in connection with religious ritual. And that is a very carefully chosen phrase on my part, in connection with, not necessarily derived from. That is a huge scholarly controversy with no end in sight, and I am staying well out of it. We have no proof that drama emerged directly as an effect caused by religious ritual, but in conjunction with is indisputable. In the classical world, drama emerged in the city-state of Athens, and it emerged as a, an event that went on during the religious festival to the god Dionysus, the dying god. And of course, it's almost irresistible to at least wonder, if not speculate, about the relationship between a dying and reborn god and a tragic hero who may, if you put comedy at the other end of a larger plot structure, may also come to some sort of rebirth and happy ending. But that is speculative. There have been fascinating, brilliant books written about the possibilities there. But we will be cautious and say, well, at least we know it was put on during that religious festival. In the Middle Ages, the first types of drama were all religious drama in the sense that they dramatized events from the Christian story. They did not emerge directly out of what you could call the drama of the ritual of the mass, but they did emerge in very direct conjunction with religion. There were two main types of medieval drama. First, the mystery play cycles. And these dramatized, these were an enormous cycle of plays, plays that told a continuous story. And that story was the story of the Bible. These things went on and on and on and dramatized over 
a period of time and many dramas, the entire narrative of the Bible. They have occasionally been resurrected around the time I was in graduate school at the University of Toronto. They did a version of that, which unfortunately I missed, but this enormous cycle, and I mention it here because one wonders about the influence at a great remove, but still the influence of the idea of an interconnected series of plays with a common plot, because that is what, out of the 10 history plays that Shakespeare wrote, eight of them, which are the ones that we will be looking at, not necessarily uh, all of them in any detail, several of them in detail, but all of them together form an enormous double tetralogy, two sets of four plays that dramatize actual English history running from a span of at least a century and a quarter, and actual history running continuously from play to play. Richard II is the play we start with because the history itself begins there. And this is confusing, but we're stuck with it. The, Richard II is the first play of the second or later tetralogy. Shakespeare, just to confuse posterity, wrote everything out of order here. He wrote the plays about later English history, which consist of the three plays about Henry VI, and Richard III, he wrote those early in his career, and those are apprentice period plays. In fact, the three, Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, are among the very earliest work of his, and some of it, again, endless critical controversy. Some of it may not be entirely by Shakespeare. He was an apprentice and may have had help from more experienced dramatists. But at any rate, that's the later time period that he wrote about earlier, if you follow me. In the mature period, we get the second tetralogy in which he goes back in time to the beginning. And we talk here in terms of what started with the deposing and death of Richard II running through the sequel, Henry IV, Part One, then Henry IV, Part Two, ending with Henry V. And Henry V will then go on, of course, to Henry VI. So we are dealing with the first play of the second tetralogy, but chronologically, in terms of the history, this is where it begins. We'll talk about what it is as we go along. But at any rate, to go back to the idea of the mystery plays of medieval drama, the idea of a whole cycle of plays giving a large-scale vision, I sometimes refer to the double tetralogy as Shakespeare's epic because epics are historical and epics give a vision of the whole set of values embodied in the history of the people to whom they belong. And that's what the history plays do. 
Shakespeare had some of his earliest successes as a dramatist with the history plays. They are one of the places where he first made his name as a rising, talented young dramatist. Was he influenced by the mystery plays? Not directly, but it's tantalizing to think about the ter the concept might have influenced him. The other type of medieval play was the morality play, which is kind of obvious from the title. An abstract allegory about morality, the most famous one is called Everyman, and that is the name of the main character, which gives you an idea of what they were like. Everyman, the main character, and this is an allegorical play about every man from a moral point of view. Some critics very definitely feel that the way of having type characters, virtues and vices in the morality plays influenced some characters in Shakespeare's history plays. Occasionally, a character will be stylized along certain lines in that way. At any rate, Elizabethan drama developed out of classical sources, medieval drama, and yet became its own thing in the Elizabethan period. This is a native type of genre. They did draw, of course, from classical drama, the genres of tragedy and comedy, we have talked about the classical influences there, the comedies of the Roman dramatists Plautus and Terence on early comedy, the influence of Seneca's Latin tragedies on early tragedy. The great plays didn't probably influence because they were unknown. Shakespeare did not know plays like Oedipus the King when he wrote Hamlet. He may have known the plot, and almost certainly did, by way of Latin summaries and other indirect routes. But at any rate, knowledge of Greek was vanishingly small still in his time, though it was returning. And the inheritance was by lesser Roman dramatists, but still, the concept of tragedy and the concept of comedy. The history plays influenced in some ways, as I've said, by medieval drama, but still a native production. They resemble Greek tragedy in the sense that Greek tragedy has characters and plot lines that draw directly from, or at least continue, some of the plot lines and characters of Homer. There is a play called Ajax, for example. There is a play called Agamemnon about the fate and death of Agamemnon, continuing the story of the Trojan War and its aftermath. But for the Greek audience, although they believed in the historicity of the characters of the Trojan War, nevertheless, for them, those were the great people of the past, the great heroes of, in fact, centuries before them, before a great decline. That's quite different from the concept of the English history play, 
which is relatively recent history. Shakespeare wrote the four tetralogy, uh, the double tetralogy, but there are two bookends, one earlier, one later. King John concerns history during the time of King John in the early 1200s. The double tetralogy, Richard II died in the same year as Chaucer, though by a rather different method. Chaucer's was natural, his was not, but both died in the year 1399, running all the way up to the death of Richard III and the ascent to the throne of Henry VII. Then late in his career, very late, Shakespeare wrote Henry VIII, which takes him to the 1530s, really the time when he had already been born. So this was relatively recent history. It would be comparable in some ways, if you are from the United States, of place set in the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War. And Civil War is a good comparison because that's what they are about. So that's the background of history plays as a genre, a unique genre. It used to be said that Shakespeare was capitalizing on a popular trend when he wrote his history plays. And it's true that Shakespeare did have an uncanny nose for whatever was popular. He sniffed out what would sell and went for it and produced his own version very successfully over and over again. On the other hand, the critics these days tend to feel that it was Shakespeare and his history plays that played the seminal role in creating the popularity of the history play. Rather than jumping on the bandwagon, he might very well have created the bandwagon. But at any rate, these plays were enormously popular with audiences. And we're going to take a look at them with a certain amount of background, only enough, I promise you, in order to understand and appreciate the plays because few of us have this kind of history at our fingertips. Shakespeare's source, he didn't have it at his fingertips necessarily either. His source for the plays we're going to be talking about was largely a book called Hollinshed's Chronicles first published in 1577, although we happen to know, thanks to all those nitpicky scholars, that Shakespeare used the second edition of 1587, so a book published within his own lifetime about this past period. And we need the background in order to begin next week looking at Act One, Scene One of Richard II, a lot is presupposed about what has led up to the first scene, let alone the whole play that follows it. And we need a certain amount of background before we even begin. And it also eventually will deepen the themes of the play because Shakespeare is not just recounting history for the sake of doing some sort of docudrama. He is also meditating on the shape of history and the meaning of history 
all of history, I would say, not just this period. It would be easiest to begin talking in a quick thumbnail sketch about where the line, the royal line that we're going to be concerned with came from in English history. And that takes us back to possibly the most crucial date in English history, one of the few that I make my English majors memorize, 1066 and all that. The Norman Conquest. Before that, the Anglo-Saxon tribes, the people who gave us, first of all, the English language in its early form, Old English, and second, some very great literature of which the best known is Beowulf in that language. They had ruled the roost, driving the Celtic peoples to the margins. When, in 1066, the Norman French from Normandy in northern France, the location during World War II of the D-Day invasion, the beaches of Normandy, in that area of northwestern France, William I brought his army from there across the English Channel and invaded Anglo-Saxon England, conquered Anglo-Saxon England, the, the Anglo-Saxon king was killed, and William became, from William I, became William the Conqueror, because that's what he did. This was the Norman Conquest. And for 200 years, the official language of the ruling elite of England was Norman French. Old English did not disappear. The conquered people still spoke it. It went underground in terms of written records. Records of Old English disappear after the Norman Conquest. And when English as a language reemerges again, and we, we, reemergence only means the presence of documents again, documents disappear. But English did not, and English was in the process, however, of mutating in that 200 years. And when it reemerged, it was Middle English, the language of Chaucer. William the Conqueror established a dynasty, dynasty whose descendants are known, at least in the English pronunciation, as the Plantagenets, though, of course, the French properly would be Plantagenet. And there are other famous kings and queens in that line. Henry II, one of the great kings, and even greater, one of the great women of history, Eleanor of Aquitaine, his wife, were a member of the Plantagenet line. A play that was later made into a film, The Lion in Winter, with Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, dramatized Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And apropos of nothing, but I just can't resist, the very first date I went on in my life in high school, we went to see the Lion in Winter film. That was where the Plantagenet dynasty, and the line comes down, however, past those people, 
two, the first name that we need to know for our plot line, even though he is in fact gone by the time Richard II opens, is Edward III, whose dates of reign were an astonishing 1327 to 1377, 50 years of a continuous reign. That's not his life, that's his ruling period. Almost unheard of in that period of time. That was, old, that was more than the average lifespan of that period. And in fact, Edward III lived a little too long because he was senile in his later years and the effective ruler of England during the later years of Edward III was one of his sons, John of Gaunt. Gaunt is actually a mutation of the word Ghent, meaning Belgium, uh, yet a pun on the English word Gaunt does appear, uh, his name is punned upon in the text of Richard II, but in effect, uh, it was only the ostensible reign of Edward III. And the plot line of Richard this, the play Richard II is the plot, counterplot and counter-counterplot of the ascent to power of the seven sons of Edward III. It all goes back to the fabled seven sons, as they will be referred to in Richard II, of Edward III. And I hope you can follow this without a chart, although I'm sure you can find a chart easily on the internet or maybe in your copy of Shakespeare. But it does pay to have a genealogical chart to follow these, especially if you're going to be reading the whole tetralogy. Seven sons, but it's made a little easier by the fact that two of them, both named William, died young. So effectively, we only have to talk in terms of plotline about five of them. And they go, of course, in order of age as genealogical charts move from left to right in terms of the oldest to the youngest. And that figures into the way that the throne was decided in England, which is by what was called primogeniture, which simply means that the line of succession was from the king to his eldest son, or, balking that, the eldest son of the eldest son. That was the way that it was determined. It was not always determined that way in all monarchies of the world. We, as we saw in Hamlet, there was a sort of voting among the oligarchic elites that apparently decided it in medieval Denmark. Hamlet complains that Claudius popped in between the election and my hopes. But in England, it was primogeniture and the oldest son of Edward III was also named Edward, but went by the name of the Black Prince, dashing name, and in fact he was a war hero, but he died young, and he never saw the throne. And therefore, 
the throne would have gone, the crown would have gone next to the second son, whose name was Lionel, Duke of Clarence. But he had died before the time came, so we're eliminating possibilities. The third in line was John of Gaunt, who had been, as we saw, effectively ruling England anyway for a good deal of Edward III's 50 years. And John of Gaunt appears in the play Richard II on his deathbed. That's the point at which we come into the plot line, so to speak. John of Gaunt is dying. He is Gaunt indeed. That's the joke made on his name. And then the question is going to be what happens after that. And John of Gaunt has a son named Harry Bolingbroke, spelled B-O-L-I-N-G, but sometimes in older sources B-U-L-L-I-N-G, but usually in texts of Shakespeare, Bolingbroke, who will become eventually Henry IV. Edward the Black Prince, however, also had a son, and he became Richard II, and he is the one who actually gained the throne in 1377 when Edward III died. The Black Prince had died Richard II, the son, oldest son of the oldest son, came to the throne and immediately proved to be an utterly impossible king, so much so that they just simply couldn't live with him. And the play Richard II is the story of his deposing and death, whereupon Harry Bolingbroke, son of John of Gaunt, will become Henry IV, but because of that, the country is plunged into civil war, and that will take us through Henry IV, Part I, Henry IV, Part II, and finally culminating and ending the civil war with the coming of Henry V, the son of Henry IV, known as Prince Hal for the most of the time in the plays. There are two other sons who do figure tangentially in the plot line, the youngest, younger than John of Gaunt. Edmund, Duke of York, is the uh, bishop in the play, and it is his change of allegiance which is the hinge of the plot line of the play. The Duke of York switches his allegiance from Richard to Bolingbroke. And, you know, spoiler alert, but I think with this complex plot that my audience might appreciate a little bit of the repetition just for the sake of clarity. But his switching of his allegiance will be the turning point of the play. And I might point out that the title page of Richard II is the tragedy of Richard II. It's regarded as a history play. It's part of the whole uh, tetralogy of history plays, but it can very much be treated as a tragedy, a tragedy with many resemblances to Hamlet. You will see that Richard 
is an endless talker who cannot act. That is why he is an impossible king, or rather it's one reason every decision he makes is a bad one in addition to that. But actually, his favorite thing is not to make a decision at all, but simply to talk and talk and talk, though he talks like Hamlet magnificently. I might add the entire play is in verse, quite different from Hamlet, very different from a play like Much Ado About Nothing, which is more in prose than it is in verse. And that makes a big difference in the feel of the play. You may not be aware of that if you are in a, uh, observing a performance, but certainly in reading it. Finally, the last and youngest son was named Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, and he had been imprisoned before the play begins on Richard II's orders. And he is being held in prison by a guy named Thomas Mowbray. And he has been killed as the play opens. That is the act, the execution of Thomas of Woodstock, the youngest of the seven sons, probably by Mowbray, who had him in custody, though Mowbray is denying it in the opening scene, but probably by Mowbray, almost certainly, and probably, almost certainly, on the orders of Richard II, though, of course, both Mowbray and Richard are denying that one. That's the opening conflict of the plot line. And I hope that's clear to you. The seven sons, who are really five sons, and it really comes down to Richard II, the son of Edward the Black Prince, versus Bolingbroke, Harry Bolingbroke, who will become Henry IV after deposing Richard II, the son of John of Gaunt. If you do look at a complete genealogy, it's much larger than that, but that will take us through the first two plays. I'm hoping that we might discuss in full both Richard II and Henry IV, Part One, that are two of the most popular plays that Shakespeare ever wrote. Henry IV, Part One, even more than Richard II, for a very good reason. And that reason is the comic relief, which is really a huge understatement of Falstaff. At any rate, next week we will begin with Richard II, a gripping play with a fascinating character. It is a character study of the title character in many ways, psychologically complex. And we'll begin next week. Mm -hmm.